0: Hi there, and welcome to Plant CEO. In today's episode, I'd like to welcome Adam Hanf. Um, Adam is the founder and CEO of Hanf Projects. He's a marketing expert and also an investor in plant-based businesses and also tech startups. Um, hi Adam, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, thank you for having me. Great to have you, and um, let's start. It would be good to let everyone know a little bit about your background actually. So um, I
1: started many moons ago as a comedy writer. I was out in California working for Gary Marshall, who at that time was the ultimate kingmaker and successful TV producer. He had two shows that were uh, killing it, crushing it, as we say now. Yeah. Uh, we didn't say that then. Uh, Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days. And you know, I was thinking about those shows before um, I got on with you or not. and um, they were celebrations of the 50s and they were created in the 70s. During the time of the Vietnam War and great stress and riots in the streets and so forth, and I think we look back on the fifties as a simpler time, and that's sort of now flash forward to where we are now, uh, going through the pandemic. We're also looking back nostalgically at the fifties. So at least for me personally, we've kind of gone full circle with the fifties being, you know, a time of, of, of. of of, uh, of calmness in the culture and uh, something that attracts people when things get really tense and stressful. So that was great fun. I, I learned a lot about comedy, um, obviously, and so a narrative structure, and also collaboration because we worked in teams. Um, nobody really owned a whole show unless you were really um, senior. Um, you worked on on different acts and kind of put it together. So it was really great. I came back to New York and um, I started my career in the advertising business as a copywriter. Um, worked with some creative agencies, I took the normal course, uh, ended up um, starting my own agency, um, built that up um, with, uh, successfully, and uh, ended up exiting that and doing what I'm doing now, which is working with a lot of startups, working with a lot of CEOs and founders on helping them position themselves, and also working with larger companies, helping them through the digital disruption that is so necessary t- uh, today, and particularly at this moment.
0: Yeah. And when you were working with uh, Gary Marshall, um, did you actually write some of the stuff that appeared on Happy Days? It's a show I used to watch.
1: Yes. I mean, as I said, I wrote jokes. I could go back and and watch some of the episodes and say, oh, that's 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 my joke. (laughs) And and I remember, of course, jokes that I thought were better that they cut out. But uh, yes, yes, there was this. I have some tracery in the culture as a result of that.
0: So I think I think that uh, you know the st- the storytelling side of you know saying a saying a joke also helps and relates to um, the advertising industry, right? When you're looking at creating copy for for brands.
1: Yes, I mean obviously humor plays a huge role in advertising, and and you know the core of humor is the unexpected, to turn things upside down, to look at something in a new way, and to be able to compress that, and that's really the secret of successful advertising. And now you know with digital advertising. And our and our attention spans being shrunk uh, continually of uh, speed and quickness and the ability to tell a story in a, in a nutshell is even more important than ever
0: yeah so I think it's also like um, you know if you've got such a, a short space of time you know how do you really get to drive those emotions that you want to get through you know in terms of Uh, happiness and uh, you know you you want people to start to love the brand
1: you need to really have this ability to tell a story in a in a brutally compressed period of time and to connect to connect with people emotionally too you know one of the things that all the research is showing in terms of what seems to work digitally is high arousal that could be positive high arousal or negative high arousal but you need to you need to ignite the note the emotions very 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 quickly and humor helps to do that too you have a Often a setup and then a punchline, tension release—the classic uh, geometry, if you will, of humor—and you know it's it's a lesson that has stayed with me and a skill that has stayed with me.
0: Yeah, one of your uh, most successful campaigns um, when you when you started your career in um, on the on the creative side was a campaign you did called "Flick Your Bic," uh, which was after the the Bic uh, lighter. Um, right how how do you think those uh you know that sort of campaign would resonate now uh, in today's world where you've got that limited time to capture the attention well,
1: actually you know uh, aside from the fact that you can uh, you know we were sort of the last tobacco related product advertised on tv first they banned cigarettes obviously right uh, then eventually they banned anything that's related to cigarettes including lighters but i think the structure of right. flick your bic is very relevant to the way communication is done today it's also based on um a cognitive bias, and we're learning more and more about those two behavioral psychology called rhyme as reason. When you do research with people and you expose them to statements that rhyme, perhaps because of their childhood memories of, of, of fairy tales and, 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 and children's books that rhyme, they believe those statements more. So things that rhyme get through and, and lodge in the brain. So yeah, I mean, I think the, the the memorability and the quickness of that campaign, the fun of that campaign is is, is relevant today.
0: Yeah, so uh, not so much.
1: Although with the um with the emergence of vaping and uh, and legalization of marijuana, who knows? Yeah,
0: yeah. um, and your your rhyming there worked with with flick
1: and I Yes, that's what you want to do, right? You want to you want to make you want to make uh, in advertising one of the rubrics is if you can make the tagline if you can um so memorable and embed the product's name in the tagline that you can't forget the product because it's part of of this of the tagline
0: yeah so then uh you know you did also create your own agency and then you sold that to WPP how how is that experience to one of the WPP agencies I think it was, it was, was fine it. I mean it was you know a
1: transaction like anything else but um it worked it worked out fine and I I you know I, I felt liberated because I didn't have the burden of an agency and I can pretty much do um the kind of work I wanted to do the kind of clients I wanted to uh connect with and um and stay off the uh, administrative side of the ledger.
0: Yeah, and now moving to, um, I guess, the industry that we're we're both very keen about, which is uh, the plant-based and, and vegan industry, especially with with startups. Um, you managed to invest in Just quite early on. Um, can you tell me about how that happened and what's been your involvement so far? Yeah, I
1: became actually I became a shareholder um, in Just through uh, work that I had done for Josh Tetrick, obviously the founder and CEO. So at that time, um, I was doing some work for other companies in the Horizons venture portfolio. Selena Chow um, ran and runs that portfolio. And she um, was an early believer in and supporter of plant-based innovation. I mean, and Impossible Foods being, you know, a a very successful uh, bet that she made, as well as others, including Better Day, The Plant-based, uh, the cell-based uh, milk, and of course, um, just Mayo, which at that time was called Hampton Creek.
0: Yeah, you so mean I'm, uh, perfect day, right? Uh,
1: perfect day. I said better day. Yes, yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get confused with all these.
0: Uh, yeah, there's lots optimistic
1: of- names out there. <laughs> better Health is the is the is the uh, digital telehealth psychi- psychology company. Um, So yeah, I met Josh and this was before the company was rebranded to just, uh, it was the product was just mayo, but the parent company was Hampton Creek. And interestingly, that was chosen by Josh because he wanted the company to sound like a natural and organics company and not a company that was for vegans and that would be too niche. And Hampton Creek had this romantic sense of a place and uh, you can imagine a bucolic environment. And he thought that that would be Um, a safer place to land initially for the brand and something that was more ingredient-based. Obviously, the company moved to just, to call itself Just, and now we have Just Mayo, Just Egg. And um, Just is a wonderful word, obviously, because it is about onlyness and and minimal ingredients, but also justice and economic justice and um, sort of agricultural justice and planetary justice are big parts of what Just stands for
0: in terms of when they changed the name from Hampton Creek to to just, uh, and that was based on a legal case, wasn't it?
1: Well, it was a combination of circumstances. So, um, yeah, they were, su- they were sued by uh, Unilever, um, who makes Hellman's, the big mayo, as the media came to call it, because under a very, very strict interpretation of the FDA guidelines, in order to call yourself mayonnaise, you needed to have eggs. This goes back... Sort of 100 years to the creation of the FDA when there are a lot of products around that had questionable ingredients and people couldn't trust what was in them. So the FDA basically said, hey, if you want to call yourself this, you need to have that. And in the case of mayo, if you want to call yourself mayo, you need to have eggs uh, because you couldn't trust a lot of unscrupulous manufacturers. Of course, those days are long gone and we have new technologies. Um, and the media was all over this story. They loved David versus Goliath, big Mayo versus small little Mayo. Wall Street Journal, everybody had stories. Um, and eventually, you know, it, it was settled. But um, through that process, became clear that um, we should just focus on the just. We should focus on just Mayo uh, as the product, and then. Fortunately, we had that word which could elevate up to be the name of the company as well. Um, and, and it was, it was more um, focused on mission and vision and truer to what the brand was about than Hampton Creek which sort of was, which was this invented more of a traditional CPG or consumer packaged goods approach which is to name something like Hidden Valley Salad Dressing, whatever that means, right? It was sort of from that spirit, but we had evolved enough to go right for the truth of the brand the essence mm-hmm. of the brand, the core.
0: Mm. And it's funny how, I guess, Hellman's have now created their own vegan mayonnaise yeah. and and selling that, I guess, quite well. Uh, I don't know how they're doing. Do you know in relation to to that core product versus... Uh,
1: uh, I can't really get into the details, but, you know, Hampton Creek, I'm sorry. Just, just, <laughs> yeah. You know, we've got Just Egg and um, we're doing, you know, we're doing very well as a company and as... Um, as a brand that consumers can come to attract, come to be attracted to and believe in, and not just buy, but actually join the brand. People love that brand uh, for, for the obvious reasons. And, um, you know, Josh used to say to me and others, <clears throat> something that, has, that stuck with me and that I think about a lot in terms of branding. He says that if we had to do everything over again, how would we do it the second time? And I think that that is how he sees the world, rather than fixing, a small part of the food system. He went ahead and kind of reinvented the whole way you think about uh, creating consumer products, consumer brands, including the amount of R&D that goes into identifying the right plant-based formulations that could emulsify like an egg or or turn into um, mayonnaise. So so, a lot of innovation in food is I would call it partial or incomplete. It doesn't say, how are we gonna change the world from the bottom up and the top down? And I think what Josh did and what Impossible Foods and others are doing is saying, let's reinvent the whole system. Let's change everything that's going on. And I think that kind of bold approach needs a, uh, the right kind of entrepreneur and the right kind of venture capital be- because you need to be willing to continue to fund it because that doesn't come cheap. And also have a little bit of patience too, because again, it takes a long time or longer time to change everything, rather than to change a small piece. But I think the excitement of this business, and I think you would agree, being so passionate about it, is not to tinker at the edges, not to, but to really solve it from the inside out.
0: Totally, yeah. And um, so, yeah, they're doing really well. Uh, I know they've got good good expansion plans to to conquer other other countries as well. Uh, you know, finding the right distribution partners, yeah. etc. Um, when you're, you've also invested, um, uh, with some other plant-based, uh, businesses, uh, it'd be great to talk about some of that and, you know, which, which other VC firms you're, you're working with on that.
1: Sure. So I'm a, I'm a partner in Sid High Capital. I believe, you know, you know who they are and, yep. um, we're focused there on better for you foods, um, that could be snack foods that could be beverages or they could be um, technology-based um, protein alternatives. So for example, a company, No Evil Foods, which we've talked about, is, is creating its own um, plant-based meats. We're also invested in a couple of companies that are doing cellular aquaculture for, um, for fish, actually. And um, one of them is called uh, Blue Nailu, and another one is called Good Catch. So these are really, uh, you know, passionate inventors, innovators, and I think what's also happening is, you know, when Josh launched um, his product using a pea protein, um, mm-hmm. the technology compared to what it is now was much more primitive, and the ability now to identify um, plant-based products that could turn into um, consumer products with more speed unless R&D investment is dramatically progressed. Computational power and processing power is one reason, because there is a lot of um, work that's done um, algorithmically to figure out exactly what leads to what. So I think we're seeing a lot of innovation and acceleration of innovation uh, in terms of of meat alternatives, dairy alternatives, fish alternatives. And I think that's going to continue. It's also going to create more competitive environment, I think. I know we're going to, Talk later about um, the future of the category, but I think um, just being able to say we're a plant-based fish is not, or meat is not going to go burger is not going to be enough. Probably not enough now, and certainly won't be enough in the near future because there's going to be um, a bit of uh, sort of a plant-based fatigue. I think that settles in, and marketers will have to combine technology innovation with good old brand building and consumer uh, communication and different and, and strong differentiation too
0: yeah and um so today you're also working with uh other types of companies like there's uh one company that we both work together which is undertone yeah. um it would be great to hear about some of those other companies that you're also working with sure well
1: undertone um as you know is um doing some really exciting work and helping brands connect with consumers digitally through um through digital platforms and digital media, and I think, you know, from my point of view and the work that I do, everything is everything is connected, right? So, you would think that what is the relationship between investing in plant-based foods and working with plant-based startups and digital marketing? Well, obviously, it's it's an incredibly important connection, right? Because the ability to reach the consumer, as I said before, is going to become, I think, a big driver of success. So, I, I as I said, you know, I. I like to work with companies that are making a dent in the world to quote Steve Jobs or dent in the universe that have bold ambition. So it's really for me not as important um, to be in specific categories. So I do love plant-based because I do think that um, is one of the most exciting areas of innovation. But I also like to work with uh, companies in other categories that have a big mission like FinTech companies or cybersecurity companies that are looking to um, to to, uh, protect us from ever-increasing threats of malware and and bad actors, both corporate bad actors, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, both uh, um, nation state bad actors and just hackers.
0: Which Uh, which company are you working with uh, on on the cybersecurity side? I'm working with a company called Expel, E-X-P-E-L,
1: that, you know, um, getting back to what I was saying in terms of starting over, these are guys that worked and were very successful at, at large security companies. And, and they had some exits, and they said we want to kind of reinvent the way cybersecurity is being marketed. We think it's too much of a black box. We think that the pricing is muddled, and you don't really know what you're paying for. So they basically are reinventing the cybersecurity company, cybersecurity industry from scratch, and it's it's been pretty exciting to work with them.
0: Nice. Um- and you're also on uh, on the board of Scott's Miracle Grow and 1 Flowers. I know we've spoken about both those companies quite a lot, and um, specifically around Scott's Miracle Grow, I think it's good that they're they're changing their formulations to make sure that they're also uh, vegan uh, certified. Uh, I've seen on their bottles of. You know different types of uh, fertilizers and, and soil. Yeah, so I yeah, think that's-
1: we are you know we are the leader by far in the consumer lawn and garden business. We also have some really interesting investments in in cannabis, which are a fast growing uh, part of the company. But we've seen um, during the pandemic um, this acceleration of interest in people growing their own foods and in really controlling their own food supply, because there's no substitute really for what you're growing out in your backyard. And we've seen 20 odd million new consumers come in to the category, you 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 probably read about it, Um, in the States and elsewhere, the the whole victory garden trend, taking back something that had happened during the war uh, when there was rationing and shortages and now applying it to uh, what's happening now. Hmm. So, um, yeah, because of, uh, of this trend, we are um, both developing and also continuing to market products that we have that are all natural, that are sustainable. We are we're a very sustainable company. We, we uh, actually, people don't realize it, we're the largest recyclers of trees that have been um, killed in hurricanes and, uh, and, uh, and just yard waste because we make so much mulch. And so much soil, and we do so much composting that we that we are the largest recycler in the country. Of and very very few people realize that. So um, yeah, I think that um, that trend of growing it yourself, and both deriving the benefit, uh, the nutritional benefit of fresh foods, which is obviously something we both believe in. But also the, the the mindfulness and the anchoring and the um, the emotional reward of being in the garden during these times is of enormous value to people. It's one of the reasons you're seeing you know apps like Headspace and Calm taking off. Gardening is part of that whole movement where we need we need to find some time for ourselves and also for our families. So uh, it's been it's been interesting to see um, how we've been able to. Um, Satisfy these deep emotional needs of consumers. So it's, it's gratifying as a brand. There aren't many brands that you know are doing um, as well as we are in the pandemic. Who make people feel good. I mean, you've got brands like Clorox and others who sell, you know, um, Purell, who sell hand um, uh, disinfectant, and um, those are things. Kind of, you have to do what we offer people is the ability to do what they want to do. So it's been an interesting seven months
0: yeah yeah and uh yeah they they must have been doing really well uh during this time with you know everyone working from home and then they they you know if they have uh, a space where they can grow their own vegetables it's great to have that encouragement especially with children finding out that it just doesn't come from a supermarket okay. right
1: Yes, yes, tomatoes don't grow shrink-wrapped, as we say. That's true. But I also think this all ties, as I said before, everything is connected. So as you get more involved in growing, and harvesting, and cooking, and then in canning, and just you are now sort of your own farmer, um, that heightens your awareness about the source of what you eat. And I think that's going to help grow, no pun intended, the plant-based world dramatically because you're seeing the power of plans right and you're more open to innovation that transforms plans so i think the pandemic will be a real accelerant for many reasons for this whole plant-based industry
0: mm, yeah totally um so you also wrote uh, a a well, co-authored a book called dictionary of the future um and there was a food section uh, yeah. in that book. so uh thinking back uh on, on that book, how much of the, especially on the food side, did you actually get right?
1: No, so I took, I went back and and took a look at the food section to see yeah. uh, what happened. So, I get asked that question a lot. So, about were you right or wrong? So, I try to avoid both extremes. One extreme being self-flagellation, I missed everything, or um, or just um, patting myself on the back, I got everything right. So, I think though, I in the case of the food category. I think we got more things right than wrong. We missed some things, like like this. The book was published pretty much two decades ago, so the um, so the the plant based innovation directly we did not touch on, but innovation um, that was related to that, and I think more importantly, um, the awareness that people wanted to shift the way they were thinking about food and the relationship to food that we got right. So for in the for example in the introduction. We talk about uh, talk about the fact that people are looking for spiritual purity in food, and I think that's been true. And at the same time, they want to eliminate the evil. Interesting word. It's actually in the book because of no evil food. So I think that that dichotomy between seeking something positive and and fulfilling and also eliminating what's bad has um, has continued. Um, I think the one of the things that we got right is. Or was the um, idea that people would be looking into the past for solutions for the future. Like we had heirloom grains. The book, by the way, is just is a is structured like a dictionary, except it's by category, and it's the words and terms that, that we predicted back then would emerge as important and meaningful today. So we said heirloom grains, and we've seen a lot of the heirloom movement, um, pastured poultry just more and more attention being paid to how animals were raised was a big theme. So we had pasture poultry, we had um, holistic herding in terms of the cattle industry and actually what we're seeing now because of the pandemic, farm sharing, where you basically um, purchase a portion of what a farm produces and um, it gets shipped to you. So that, those are pretty uh, prescient, I have to say, given, given that it was two decades ago um, so there are some other clean label foods is another example, which at that time, nobody was ever talking about. Now it's everywhere, right? The idea of we want clean label foods. So I think the basic idea that we were moving towards a much more conscious, mindful, attentive way of eating and shopping, cooking and consuming, we, I think we got that right. But as mm-hmm. I said, we didn't specifically land on, um, engineering or or technical engineering to create plant-based alternatives, plant-based The technology wasn't there yet and we didn't just see it.
0: You did also predict uh, the rise of electric cars Uh, and we see obviously with with Tesla being a good proof at spearing that growth at the moment. Yeah, we did say that there would be what we call
1: craft electric vehicles that would emerge and challenge Detroit. So that was that was interesting. And then on the um, so on the internet side of things, um, this was again, before, it was before Facebook, like maybe six months before Facebook popped up at, at Harvard. But we did see that the internet was going to be a place that created uh, emotional distress potentially for people as they compared themselves to others. So we had a term in the book called comparative anxiety, uh, which at that time, nobody thought about it at all, frankly. But now of course, um, it's a big social and psychological problem so
0: did did you watch the social dilemma yet on uh, netflix (laughs) yeah yeah it's kind of worrying when they when they put it in that way doesn't it isn't it yes i think it's i mean it's
1: it's what's going to be interesting about
0: that is everybody who
1: sees it and many have or hear about it and more have are beginning to understand this vast manipulative engine that and the uh, power of the algorithm and the and the behavioral manipulation of people but we'll see what happens mm-hmm. if it actual, if people actually reduce um, their consumption of it but you know the cleverness of the people behind it is that they understand how the brain works they keep talking about the brain stem they get inside the brain stem and of course when you addict somebody to something um, it's very hard to de-addict yourself mm. like, there was one I think I forgot who quote uh, whose quote it was in the movie it Said that there are only two people who use the word users to describe their customers drug pushers
0: and silicon valley yeah yeah software companies yeah it's yeah it's quite funny when they said that um so thinking about also the electric car side obviously you know the, the main reason a lot of people are buying electric cars is for the environment um and i think it's great when uh you know, electric car companies also have a voice to say, okay, we're not going to use any animal byproducts. Uh, How important do you think that is that, you know, other manufacturers take note and they're not using things like uh, animal leather and they're using plant-based leather, for example, in their vehicles? Well,
1: I think it's certainly important for the early adopter. Again, it gets back to the idea of sort of the interdependent connected planet, right? So people who care about what well, one side of the equation in terms of impact care about that broadly. They don't just care about it in terms of uh, electric cars or solar panels on their roofs or, or animal rights, they care about it holistically. So I do think that it is something that is important to the consumer because they are looking for the company to be as consistent as possible. And hypocrisy is, is really um, what they are philosophically and ideologically opposed to. So I think that they that that the act sort of like call it horizontal sustainability, which is not just the car as a vertical construct, but the car as a horizontal integrated construct is something that we'll see replicate itself in other categories as well. You know, we could see you know in something as vast as home building for example i mean we've gone we have lead buildings and so forth but i think particularly millennial consumers and we didn't we've gone this far and not we didn't mention the word millennial one time so we Mm -hmm. just kind of a a record um are are probably the most um uh the, the generation that's most focused on interdependence i would say um and maybe it's because and i've thought about this they are the most diverse generation ethnically diverse generation in history so i think when you grow up seeing the seeing people as diverse and seeing the connections between people i think you see the world the larger world in that through that lens as well
0: mm-hmm. and also uh,
1: say, say again not consciously but unconsciously i think millennials are looking are looking at um at the world through a very consequential lens if this then that if if you're going to really live up to your values then you have to live up to them across the board. Yeah. And that also includes how you pay your workers and and and, and your sourcing um, philosophy and your and your sourcing practice.
0: Yeah. And also, you know, the Generation uh, Zs are, are yeah. the ones that are moving uh, yeah. towards this sort of lifestyle where they're looking at everything, like you say, at a horizontal level, you know, what-, it, what Yeah,
1: it'd be it'd interesting it to, be. to see, um, a cynic would say that um, you know, the millennials, and I guess we'll see generation Z behind them. Um, most certainly the millennials, the the data is showing that they're going to be the first generation in the U S that will not live as well as their parents. And this was before the pandemic. And there's a lot of economic data that shows also when you graduate into a recession, um, you never catch up. Most people never catch up economically. So if there's going to be Um, sort of this this ongoing economically straightened world that the younger generation is gonna deal with. How is that gonna impact their buying patterns and their consumer choices? Because at least right now, um, some of these plant-based alternatives and some of these more sustainable alternatives are just more expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. The food system is not, the new food system has not yet emerged in a way that it could compete with the old industrial food system. Um, there's an interesting company called Rethink Food um, where my friend Brad Jakeman, who ran Pepsi Beverages is a, is a partner that is trying to change the entire food system to take some of those costs out. But again, as I said before, a cynic would say, well, it's all well and good when you got money to you know, act responsibly and buy and shop responsibly. Let's see what happens when these millennials have to make choices that are more economically driven. It'll be interesting to see um, what happens to philosophy under economic duress?
0: Yeah, I hope. I hope uh, you know the, the large-scale companies will start to scale up the existing corporates in the food space. Start to change their ingredients. Um, I hope also that we start to see um, more whole food, plant-based diet, You know, you know, uh, foods being cooked at home. You know, in in a very um, economical way uh, to to spear that growth. I think. All those things are really important to make sure that happens, right? And we, and
1: we need tax policy. I mean, if you go back in history to to the subsidies of corn, yes. for example, and how fructose emerged as the uh, as the ingredient that it is, and and with this incredibly pervasive presence, it was it was it was tax policies. Many many of them coming out of World War II, um, that remained in force because of very strong lobbying groups. So. It might be a bridge too far but i think we really need to rethink um how we subsidize industries at the at the federal level that's where impacts can happen uh, on a very very dramatic scale
0: yeah totally and and then it does require these lobby groups to to go and fight for that in a way and whether you know who, who would be best placed to do that in a way is it is it the animal welfare companies is it the these uh, big firms, like you know, beyond and impossible working with these.
1: it has some, it has some
0: yes, it, yes, but the, I think the beyonds and the
1: impossibles will never have the lobbying might of big food. I think it's got to move from a nutritional issue to a political issue. And you know when you look at them at the at the pandemic and who it's affected, a lot of it is related to and more and more the data is showing it's related to not just obesity but being overweight and high bmi is increasingly correlated with a higher risk of uh, serious consequences from the virus that's a result of our very food system yes. yeah. and also people who uh, people of color who um, don't have access to healthier foods so that's why i maybe maybe the maybe the pandemic will be a flashpoint for a new for political activism around nutrition because it's got to it's got to come with that kind of with that kind of social muscle behind it as opposed to um, through through traditional lobbying and and uh, and pressure that way, I think I think it could happen. I think there could be this vast rethinking of how we create, grow, and distribute our food that comes out of this.
0: Yeah, and now you know, people of color are, are the fastest growing trend in America, uh, especially for for plant based foods.
1: Uh, I think yes, and I think you know. We didn't talk about school lunch programs obviously but i mean i don't know uk i mean jamie oliver you know tried yeah. to change the uk yeah. Yeah. Um, but ours you know what we the amount of money we the amount of money that we allocate i think it's under a dollar for um the average school lunch is just um it's just criminal here it's really nutritional malpractice and particularly so many kids who don't have a hot meal in the morning until they get to school so again this requires a broad awakening we have to start in making the right kind of investments and the best thing i mean the data also shows that nutrition and the ability to learn are linked inexorably linked so if we want to make an investment in the future of this country um and we want to invest in education to drive that we have to invest in nutrition in a parallel way and we have to take the responsibility of using um school lunches as a way not just to shove into kids' mouths, but to teach them, as they do in France, how to eat properly. I don't know if you've ever seen, but it's all over the internet, these comparisons of what school lunches look like.
0: I haven't seen it, no.
1: You Google it, it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. It's phenomenal. I, they teach, because they teach people how to appreciate food and um, the, the, both the social and the nutritional value of a good meal. I
0: yeah. think that's so important. Like if we could try and, you know, if, if the if it's a dollar, I'm sure there'll be companies. Actually, I'm speaking to one company that said they see that as a you know a strategic position for them to be able to supply uh, schools with a healthy plant-based uh, meal, where you know they can they can get it to that that price level in maybe like a, you know South Africa for example. Where yeah, I mean, look, I think you know discipline creates
1: innovation, right? And you know if you have to do it for a dollar. It's a forcing factor, but we shouldn't have to do it for a dollar. But yes, in some places around the world, you know, there's just not enough. There's just not enough wealth within the country to, to fund it, and Mm -hmm. and you have too many, um, and you have such a such a um, dramatic skew to a younger population as well.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: But here in in the in in wealthier countries, we we're Mm -hmm. not investing in the right way clearly.
0: Yeah, Um, and there's definitely. uh... You know, affect obviously to um, you know those diseases according to um, you know uh, diabetes and uh, you know heart disease. When you link it with eating more animal sourced uh, products, uh, you do see that increase as well, right? So
1: yes, clearly.
0: If 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 we can try and convince people to eat more healthy, but also eat more plant based, I think we'll start to see especially on the health services, uh, the pressure being reduced, um, and especially more people surviving this, this pandemic.
1: I, I, I'm sure that if, um, if and when, because it will happen, um, epidemiologists do research on the dietary habits of the people who um, succumb to the virus, you will definitely see a trend to, um, to more fast food and more sugary uh, soft drinks. without without question so when we sort of wake up and realize that you know our food system is killing a lot of people or making a lot of people more vulnerable to because of the comorbidities that exist because of the way they've grown up they realize that um, we have a lot of work to
0: do yeah and if you were today gonna rewrite your book or you know predict the future uh, of where plant-based foods will be and. Also thinking about the timescale, where you, where you, where, where would you predict things on, on that?
1: I think you know the you, you know the the data which shows what it's going to be a thirty billion dollar industry in a couple of years. I think we're I think we're going to like many things. The pandemic will accelerate for all the reasons we talked about. I think the industry is going to grow very rapidly. Um, we're going to see more and more commercial, um, and we're seeing a lot of it now. Commercial. Um, Buy-in to plant-based alternatives, both fast food, quick serve restaurants. Um, if people ever go back and eat in corporate cafeterias on the uh, on the uh, Cisco side of the world as well, so I think I think we're going to very quickly, and we're probably there now, move to a place where it this, it will be insufficient just to say we're plant-based, just like it's insufficient to say you know for how many it was insufficient to say we are um, prime or grade A beef, right? It it was a blunt instrument. Um, So we're gonna have to really differentiate more, both in terms of innovation and in terms of branding, as I said. And also, I I think that um, right now the the strength of plant-based meats is what we're not as opposed to what we are. It's really the absence of a negative in many ways. We don't have, we don't kill animals. That's all good. We don't, we don't pollute. That's all good. We don't add to your lipids. That's all good. But, and I'm sure you've seen this, this the beginning of a backlash to, Well, what is actually in these products? They are, they are not minimally processed. There's a lot of processing that goes on to create an Impossible Burger, or Beyond Meat, or any of these things. So I think that. We're going to see some kind of a coming together of minimal processing, minimal ingredients, and plant-based to create sort of a new a new norm that's going to deliver on both of them. Because you know, getting back to um, to the way they eat in Europe, France particularly, they'll eat um, meat and they'll eat chicken, obviously, and they um, do it in moderation. And their farmers are still very often outside the big industrial complex the way they are here. So um, with, with eating less and with healthier production, they don't have the same kind of health issues that we have here. And I'm not talking about the famous French paradox and wine and foie gras, that's something else. Just in terms of the way they approach the ritual of eating um, and the way they still support And This is government again. The and it's going to be tough for France to continue, but they still support small farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember the demonstrations, you know, a few years ago when um, they were throwing out McDonald's and so, burning McDonald's and so forth.
0: Yeah, a lot of them still struggling, though, to be honest. I think there's a lot of suicides in, in, in uh, you know, farmers uh, because they can't uh, economically run their, their farms anymore. Uh, so there's, there's still a lot of problem, but well, I, gonna, I mean, the restaurant,
1: yes. And what's, what's happening now with the pandemic, that's going to even accelerate.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you see, you see that being a crucial side, like, um, you know, less, less ingredients. And I would def, definitely agree with you there. Uh, less processing. Um, what else do you see? W- what else do you see? Do you see, like when you, when you said that plant-based isn't enough, do you see an, a new evolution coming as well? Um, what, what I don't see all the time is, I guess, people linking plant-based foods necessarily uh, with climate change. Um, and I think we do need to push that topic more. You know, there was uh, the documentary um, with David Attenborough uh, that says, come mm-hmm. on, uh, uh, a life on our planet. And um, he, he describes there uh, in a very short way, but at least he put it in there that, you know, you know if, if most of the planet uh, we were plant-based, then you know, we'll, have, we'll be using uh, half the land that we do at the yeah. moment. Um, so I, I do see that linking being, a, do you, would you agree with that? Do you, do you think we need to really push the area of like climate change with? Uh, I do,
1: I do. And that gets back to the generations of the future, seeing the world as more interconnected as opposed to more siloed, you know, farming pun uh, not intended. But you know, if you look at the word planet and the word plant, I mean it's the same word, just with an E in the middle. So I think that, which yeah. is sort of a linguistic accident. But I, I think that we are, we we need to recognize, and I think plant-based, the, the plant-based industry needs to recognize, such as it is an in industry, that there's a larger um, conversation that that needs to be had and, and, and should be had. And I think one of the things maybe we will see is, you know, there was the famous Got Milk campaign and industries have the raisins. Industries have been able to get together, basically putting a tax on their members and then do marketing that basically is not product or brand or company specific, but is industry specific. That's right. So this plant-based foods is still immature. Nobody's really spending that much money on marketing to start with. But I think in the future, There needs to be a plant-based trade association. As-
0: associations, yeah. yeah. So you've got associations like uh, the Vegan Society here in in the UK, uh, and uh, you've also got Veganery, who are pushing pushing the topic. But uh, do they,
1: I don't know this, but but did they essentially tax their members to to create marketing and advertising to educate the consumer about the benefits of the whole category?
0: So you can I think you can basically donate to those organizations um and um and the, the mem the members can donate uh, so th- that will fuel them creating more I would say uh content and campaigns um to help uh educate. Yeah, that's good. And we need, yeah. we need somebody like I mean the, the, the old school
1: trade associations are extraordinarily powerful in this country, getting back to our, our lobbying conversation. Yes. So I think, and there is no, nothing nearly the equivalent in plant-based. It's too soon, too early, too embryonic. But I think um, with the right charismatic leader, because it's not often easy to go to people who compete beyond meat, beyond possible foods, and beyond burger, they're all competing for the same disposable dollars. Say, wait a minute, give us a half of 1%. Or join this trade association uh, with your enemies, your frenemies, essentially, mm. and we're going to um, go raise change the,
0: raise the awareness, yeah, yeah. Now,
1: it's in a way you could argue that if traditional legacy companies were able to kind of get together to form a trade association and put their competitive differences aside, it's just just philosophically, attitudinally, it'll be easier for these new age companies to do it because they are more mission-driven. So mm-hmm. because you're more mission-driven, you could, you could kind of look at it through a non-competitive lens. So I, I think, that, and particularly now with digital, you can really target effectively those people who will be the consumers of the future. So I think we'll see in terms of predictions, um, some cross-industry efforts to communicate, as you said, the planetary benefits as well as the personal benefits as well uh, uh, of, uh, of plant-based innovation.
0: Yeah, and you are seeing these uh, planetary diets come up as well. You know how you can live your yeah. life according to what what will heal the planet in a way. Um, and as, it's funny as you said about, we also, you know, you mentioned Tesla. Yes, um, I and mean when you you know when a
1: Tesla's sitting out in your driveway, it's you know it's what they call virtue signaling, which is everybody knows you're driving a Tesla. When you have a sun, when I mean you have a solar panel, everybody sees your solar panel. When you're doing other kinds of, when you're doing embracing other kinds of behaviors that are not as visible, that don't involve virtue signaling, um, they give you a personal reward, but they don't have the projective reward. So it'd be interesting to brainstorm and think about how um, you can turn plant-based eating into something that has more uh, exposure to others.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that because you know when I went vegan, it was like you do kind of feel a bit isolated. And you want other people to know. And that's why I think a lot of people do become quite vocal about it when they're they're talking about it. But they they have no outlet. In a way, this is kind of my outlet to to encourage the growth uh, and awareness. I was talking to um,
1: some entrepreneurs, early, early stage, that have a technology for turning um, carbon, pulling carbon from the air and turning it into gasoline. Wow. Yeah, a a little reactor kind of a thing. Yeah. So they showed me sort of the deck and how they were thinking and they had it like behind the house. They said, Don't put it behind the house. Nobody can see it behind the house. You should put it in front of the house. So everybody can see you're doing the right thing, like the solar panel that does. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. But I, you know, this goes back to, you know, Veblen and conspicuous consumption and all of those, um, all of that research that shows we want people to see we're doing the right thing. I mean, that's what social media is about, right? Yeah. Again, social media does give you the ability to um, virtue signal, to to project to your friends and your uh, and your network that you are doing the right thing.
0: You mentioned earlier uh, about the Got Milk campaign, which was hugely successful, and people still remember that today. Uh, If you were, you know, if you were, say, if you were looking after this this trade association, and you had to. Create your own campaign now. What would you think would would resonate with today's millennials and and Generation Zs if you were going to create some sort of campaign? You know,
1: what's interesting is that they used a lot of celebrities in
0: they did that campaign before
1: right before anybody used the word influencer, but that's essentially right. what it was. Right. So I, I think that influencers would be a very powerful part of any sort of trade association campaign sort of micro, but not necessarily big celebrities, but more sort of micro influencers, I think. Mm. Um, and I think that would be, that might be the first trade association campaign that uses micro influence. It'd be interesting to say, mm, really, um, really get to um, the beginning of, of how celebrity is created. And that's sort of what you want to do. You want to create a new kind of celebrity Around plant based eating, not an old school top down celebrity model, but a newer bottom up celebrity model. So, influencers, so micro influencers are, are sort of to me strategically, conceptually the right way to go for a trade association. Mm,
0: interesting. Yeah. And I think also these uh, documentaries really do help, right? Uh, so, uh, okay. And obviously that they require all funding to, to make it happen. You know, there's been a lot of successful documentaries in this area.
1: Food Inc. and so forth.
0: Like What the Health, Cowspiracy, you know, the game changers, all, all these documentaries running for good with Fiona Oaks was really interesting. Um, right.
1: you know, one of the things that I think they're they haven't done yet, which they need to do is to take those long form documentaries and edit them into uh, uh, sound bite kind of nuggets that could be pushed out through social media because the number of people who you could reach by breaking those up and pushing those out through social channels is exponentially greater than people going to sit through a whole 90-minute documentary. In fact, from a production point of view, I think you need to sort of reverse engineer the process and create documentaries that have editable moments built into them that could be pulled out. Um, again, getting back to trade association. You, you know, if a trade association wanted to change thinking, it's not gonna fund people going to watch an hour and a half documentary on Netflix, but you could take six, eight, 10 second, six, you know, 30 second little edited versions, capsules, from the and push them out. But the documentaries are not built and shot to accommodate that kind of social media harvesting, mm-hmm. if you will. But I think in the future they should be.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting because I'm working with this platform called Beyond Animal, and uh, one one of their most successful posts. Um, the, the platform is there to encourage the vegan economy, actually, with uh, with with uh, users, um, but also businesses uh, right. who are looking to to raise money. Uh, one of their posts they had was, uh, you know, the top 10 films, uh, uh, you know, plant-based documentaries. Right. Uh, to take that a step further, if if there was a way that you could vote for your favorite scenes, and that brings exactly. back to the you know, people who created these. to exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, that'd be quite a good one to, to create.
1: You know, because we are, as they said, in the social network, we are in a war for attention, it's a battle for attention. So that applies to everybody.
0: So Adam, you also have your own uh, podcast. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, sure. So um, you mentioned Dictionary of the Future. Um, my co-writer and, uh, uh, on Dictionary of the Future, uh, a futurist, a uh, woman named Faith Popcorn, who's an old, old friend of mine, uh, and I decided that uh, we, should, uh, we should do a podcast that uh, sort of captures the shocks that the world is going through now and we're calling the podcast Jolty, J-O-L-T-Y for obvious reasons and it's on Apple and all, and all the uh, podcast platforms out there. And we've had some uh, terrific guests. I mentioned Brad Jakeman from Rethink Food. he's uh, He's been a guest. My friend Jim McCann who's chairman and founder of 1-800-Flowers has been uh, a guest and we're talking about subjects that are related to their world and the pandemic and where we see things going and how consumers and brands are dealing with the shocks of the moment. So um, it's uh, it's been fun. And if any of your listeners want to um, subscribe, we would appreciate it.
0: That's great. And Popcorn Faith, is that uh, her real name or is it a, a pseudonym? Um, well, Faith is her real name.
1: And there's a long story about how she had a boss who couldn't pronounce her last name and he called her Popcorn. And then she realized that it was a wonderful branding opportunity and she's been Faith Popcorn ever since.
0: So thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. This was a great chat. I'm sure we'll have uh, many more to come.
1: Yeah, it's really fun. Congratulations to yeah. you for all your great work in this industry, for the for the podcast, your advocacy, your evangelism. You know, it's been uh, a lot of love and a lot of work, but uh, it's all appreciated.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully see you again soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Be well. Cheers, Adam. Bye.
1: Cheers.